Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and explore strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. A best-selling author and former Disney screenwriter, Michael Ashley's content company raises the profile of brands through the power of storytelling. With both written and spoken words, he enables his clients to share their stories in creative and compelling ways. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll find inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Michael. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Do you find that uh, writing for a business application versus writing for entertainment is much different? Yeah, I mean, in fact, I kind of sometimes like writing for business more than I like for writing for entertainment. I mean, it depends on the project, but often what I found about entertainment was that the people weren't serious and they didn't know what they wanted to do. And when they did and it came to fruition, it was often vapid and there wasn't very much behind it. It wasn't very redeeming. Redeeming for who? For you, the writer, or for them? Well, maybe it's redeeming for them. Uh, but I mean, for the writer and for the audience is what I really meant. Um, right. I've worked on a lot of projects that I just thought were vapid and trite. But when it comes to business books or maybe just nonfiction in general, it seems to me that there's an opportunity to say things that are deeper and more meaningful. And more specific because they're goal-oriented? Well, there's that too, but there's also a sense of seriousness. It might sound like a weird tangent, but I'll, I'll go on it. Barry Weiss has an interesting new media project. She's a former journalist with the New York Times, and there's an article she posted this month called American Seriousness. And the idea was looking at all the ways that our infrastructure is collapsing, all the ways in which our institutions have lost trust with the public. And I think what's missing is this idea of American seriousness. You think about something like the greatest generation or even the boomers, I I would say too, they had a certain seriousness, which I wouldn't say has to be, you know, puritanical, but it was an intention. It was a mindfulness about what they wanted to see brought to the world. And I think business people have that to an extent that not all entertainment people do. Likewise, I'll say that the people that Hollywood is now hiring, unfortunately, don't have life experience. And I've been watching some movies and TV shows where I noticed they don't know how to write for characters. Right. You look at the writings that came out of, from people like William Goldman, if you look at writers, um, they're um, screenwriters in the 50s and the 60s during the golden era. A lot of those people had life experience. They had been in the war, they had worked, um, they were married, they had children. The people right now are infantilized, I think, that the writers that are coming up now, and they don't know how to write deep characters. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting observation. Uh, Could it be that the ones that you know from that era were were standout and that the ones that are standout now aren't identified yet? Could be. I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, the people that stand from that era that, you know, there are many movies I haven't seen from that era and the ones that have lasted, those people are standout. Although I'll say, you know, that that I I think I do a a decent job of of watching new media and things that are on right now. There are there are some bright points. I I won't say that there aren't. I'm just saying in general, this is the trend that I'm seeing. What what was the impetus that took you from being an entertainment writer to a business oriented writer? Is it a metamorphosis that really came without a distinction? Did it just kind of and did it just happen that way? What happened was I I was able to sell a treatment to, to Disney and able and I got an agent and I was able to leave my day job. And then I ended up doing some things I did like. 
Um, I created a science fiction TV show with JJ Abrams, lead visual effects designer, and I did some projects I liked, but there wasn't anything that really made me feel like I was living the world I wanted to to live, and it, as if I was expressing myself in the way that I, I set out to do. Um, my major was philosophy in college, and I wanted to create stories with meaning behind it. And that is until in 2014, I think it was, I was hired by a, a private individual to create a video series on scientific concepts, particularly evolution for children. And so originally it was a, it was a, a web TV series. And so I wrote it and I also produced the show and I had a team of animators, but eventually that project morphed into a book. And so I ended up taking those ideas and creating a longer science fiction fantasy type book in the realm of Harry Potter. And so when that, as I was writing that, I was also working as a magazine columnist for, for the energy sector. And I had been a, a reporter before then, so I had some experience uh, being a reporter and writing on deadline and that kind of thing and doing articles, but not so much where it was day in and day out. And so at the time I was writing a book all day, every day, and then writing magazine articles. And so when that was done, my son was born and I had, I was at a crossroads. Do I go to work for someone else and find a project like that? Or do I do something different? And my wife had an idea. Why don't we start our own content company? As I mentioned before, she's a writer. Um, she wasn't writing then because we just had a baby, but um, she was providing me advice and, and consulting and being my, my partner in a lot of ways. And so that's what got me into it. I started my company in 2015. And um, back then, I mean, even now, there aren't really people that do what I do. And so we were able to kind of blaze our own trail, create our own path. And that's how I got into the more of the, the business realm of writing. And then as projects beget other projects, that's just the way it went down. Sorry. Uh, so tell us. <laughs> sorry, there's hair in my eye. Um, but, sorry. That's okay. You have a little a lettuce in your teeth also. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, um, so in a nutshell, or as long as you want, but, sure. you know, try to be succinct. What, what is, what, what is your value proposition for businesses and how do you bring it to market and how do you, how do you, uh, um, how do you determine what a project is and how long is an engagement? Give us an oversight overview rather of your business, please. Sure. Uh, the value proposition that I have is that I turn my clients into thought leaders through the power of the written word. Most likely that takes the form of a book, but it can be other forms as well. It could be blogs, it could be copywriting, it could be web copy, um, articles, but prim primarily it's books. And so my clients are often CEOs, lawyers, people that are at the top of their game who want to distinguish themselves from their competition, but more importantly, they have a story to tell. They have insights that they have learned through their experiences, through their successes. Oftentimes they want to leave a legacy to their children or their grandchildren, or they want to distinguish themselves in the marketplace, or they want to be viewed as a thought leader, for instance, about technology like AI or big data, or they want to be known for a certain idea or a way of viewing um, whatever the topic is in their industry. And so a book does that for them. Is that a, a um, modern way of saying you're a ghostwriter or is a ghostwriter something different? No, I think that's a good way to think about it. Although, although I say there's a caveat. Um, I do sell it to people as ghostwriting because it's an easy form to, to explain it. Uh -huh. But in, in all actuality, I've written nearly 40 books 
in my career and only two didn't have my name on them. Uh, so it's not true ghostwriting. You're, you're a co-writer then. More co-writing, yes. Got it. Although pretty much none of my clients write the book. I'm writing it, but we're doing it together. And their name goes first or my name goes second. Well, what is the process? Uh, the process? Now, typically, I can try to do a 55,000-word book, which is almost about 300 pages, depending on the kind of uh, size of book that you select. And we spend six to nine months creating the typical book. The first three to four months is me meeting with my client. I'm asking them questions. I'm kind of going back to my reporter days where I'm asking them interview style questions. But then at the same time, I'm putting on my, my Disney hat in the sense of creating stories. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book about insurance, which I would say most people aren't uh, thrilled by the, the subject of insurance. But I made a very conscious choice to include stories with high conflict in the book. And so I'm looking for those those chances to do that. When I meet with my clients, generally these days it's through Zoom, and I use something like Google Docs or my own Word document, and they can see my screen at the same time. And I begin every book with six questions. Um, the first one I always ask is, how will this book help you in your life or your career? And then I move to other questions like, what is the problem that your audience may have and how do you solve it? And then we get a little more granular and I think I asked them to think about the book in terms of what the chapters might look like and if you have a thesis in mind for your book. But together, we create an outline. And the outline includes bullet point by bullet point, chapter by chapter, everything we're going to cover. And they're very thorough. They're analogous to a blueprint for a house. In fact, uh, I did one recently for a book that I'm writing with my lawyer client. And the, the outline alone is 30,000 words. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I, when I think back of the most influential books I've read for business, they are very much third person books in novel form. Mm. One of them is called The Goal. They were very influential in terms of my ability to understand their meaning, convey it to others and use it as a teacher. I assume that that's a big part of what you're doing is you, you're, you're, you're putting the, note, the, the story into the, into the book. That's what you meant by your insurance you were putting a conflict, a, a, a story with the book about insurance, correct? It is, and but it's yeah. taken other forms too. So if you ever read um, Who Moved My Cheese or Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I've actually written novels, business novels. So I've done that right. as well. Or what I, what I was kind of referring to is more, I would say, a Malcolm Gladwell-esque approach where you have a story, but the story is the hook typically that brings you into more of the explanation. And so... All of those different ways I've done it. Mm. I try to be with every book project. I try to strike a a more novel balance with it. Try to find some way into the material, something new I haven't done before, I haven't seen before, and to do different things so that we're not. I'm never recreating or never doing something the same. Right. That must be a challenge for you if you get two people in the same industry, same basic deliverable that they want you to uh, to write stories. Especially if you're writing forty of them, it must be a little bit unique. A challenge sometimes. I want to carry the thought forward. I was thinking about before we got on. I was thinking that I start my my interview process with with my guests with just kind of a written. I want to find a f get a few questions sent to you, and you were pretty quick to respond, saying, "Let's do it verbally." I write all day long. <laughs> I I don't want to write anymore. I'm exhausted from writing, and I and I thought that comment from a writer. By the way, you're the first person ever of all the people I've interviewed to respond that way. And it seemed perfectly understandable to me. It's like, you know, a busman's holiday. The last thing you want to do is 
you know, when you drive for a living, go on, go, go take a road trip. And so, so I just want to you know, throw that out to you as just my perception of our experience. Sure. I mean, I could certainly write the answers if you want. It just felt like, you know, I could do it verbally. It's quicker. Listen, I'm doing podcasts. Verbally is better for me. I think the dialogue is better. It helps me understand the cadence in which we speak and be able to communicate with you better. So I was fine. I just, I always use the written things because people get back to me, you know, a month after I send it to them. So I never know when they're going to get back to me with some of these, these questions I have. Right. 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 So one of the books I was thinking of before is the go giver mm-hmm. that that's written in a novel form and that, yeah. and that takes you down a path. And I thought that had a lot of, uh, it was funny because that was a book about, about the power of selfless business practices. And, and um, yeah, it's a great book. And I thought it was, it, it was very effective because it's written in a, in a short story format, but it also was written in a, anybody can understand it format. I, I would assume that maybe not your seven-year-old, but maybe when he's about 12 or 13, he, he might understand that book very well. Um, it was written very simple. Is that, is that common among business books written in that genre to write it? for a pretty basic level of understanding? Yeah, so I've written books that are more complex, but even when I've done that, like for instance, I've done books about AI or or big data, and we tried to democratize the content so people could understand it. But what I found more and more lately, what I think is an art form, kind of reminds me, I think of Ernest Hemingway, who was a big proponent of short, pithy sentences that would evoke a lot. And I think there's actually a, a real talent in doing that. Mm-hmm. What I mean by it is this. If you think about somebody like Tolstoy, who has a book that's nearly a thousand words, he wrote that in a time in which people had much more opportunities to do reading, right? They didn't have the internet. They didn't have chat boxes. They don't have text and all the stuff that we have right now. They didn't, didn't have, have TikTok back then? Tolstoy didn't TikTok. TikTok with the... <laughs> so it was a product of the time, you know? It, yeah. it, were uh, let's say even a laborer and you had worked all day long it might feel very comforting to go home and read a thousand page novel over several months but knowing that people don't think that way and don't have lives like that anymore i think it's a better approach to meet people where they're at so i'll give you an example malcolm gladwell who i mentioned earlier has a new book called the bomber mafia that i just happened to read and you can read it in in about in, in a night and he uses very short sentences. He's not alone. I've seen other authors do this. And lately I've been wanting to write, I have been writing this way because I think that there is a benefit in the, the economical way that he writes the sentences. If you can do something where you have short sentences where the pages go by very fast, they're page turners, and yet you're saying something profound and deep with that, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition. If you contrast that with, let's say, Tolstoy or or even Dostoevsky for a second. Those books are very complex, the, the sentence structure, the way that they talk. And, I, and honestly, I, I do like the Russian authors. I, I pick on them because they write longer books. But really, if you look at Anna Karina, you could probably cut about 400 pages out. We don't need to hear about agrarian land reform. Does it really matter for the love story? Probably not. Um, Have you ever read, I mean, it, it, there's nothing like the opening to Hawaii by Michener. There's nothing like the the formation of the earth being described or Steinbeck Steinbeck's grapes and wrath starting with the tortoise crossing the road. There's nothing about there's nothing like the the cadence of those books that brings the whole rhythm to how you read it and so on. I'm not discounting what you're saying by the way. I'm just saying that you can cut that out, but then they wouldn't be Dostoevsky. 
Oh, of course, of course. And I, I mean, every book should be different. I mean, my favorite book is On the Road. And there's very long sentences there, and they have all kinds of adjectives and descriptive language. I love that, too. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, I think, uh, for me, at this moment in my career, that I like to, to experiment with the shorter sentence form. Right. Because I think, in some ways, it's harder to write that way. Because, it, you know, you can write a four-sentence description of something, or four lines, and uh, you may have gotten your point across, but can you do it in one or two sentences? It's harder. Right. I find that one of the challenges with business books, I read, you know, a respectable amount of business books. And I find one of the challenges is that they make their point in the first chapter and they spent the rest of the book reinforcing the first chapter's yeah. points. And so it, yeah. it always kind of frustrates me is like, can I just read a summary? I don't need to yeah. read every, yeah. you know, and, and I find that to be very consistent. And when I toy with writing, I realize just how challenging it is. You're trying, you have a thought and it's really profound and it's really meaningful and it's really going to be a great tool for the audience, but you still have to make it worth the $20 you want to charge for it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. And so I, I much, much prefer the, for business books, I much prefer the summaries. You know, let me, let me buy the summary. We can discuss it as a group as to what the support is for it. So that's, so I'm not trying to, when I write a business, read a business book, I'm trying to uh, educate myself, not entertain myself. And right. you're, I think what you're doing is you're blending those two uh, goals. I try to do that. And I, I also right. have another philosophy about books and especially nonfiction books is I like to go from simpler to more complex. Uh, and so what I like to do is I like to give people breadcrumbs. Chapter one, I'll set up an idea. And then as it goes on, we will reference back, we'll come back to the idea so that we're not doing what you're saying where it's all explained in chapter one and the rest of it is just repeating that idea. I like to build up to something much like a movie does. Mm -hmm. We increase the tension, increase the complexity and so that they are driven along to want to know more. Now, as, as I understand it, you have a team of people that write for you, correct? Mm -hmm. So how do you, um, tell me how you manage them and how they become integral with how your philosophy because you're because what you just said is really important and i could see it being a super um big distinction between you and any competitors you might have but now you have a team of people and how do you convey what you're trying to get in something as subjective as writing talent sure well i'll say i've worked with a lot of different writers and you know a lot of times it didn't work out it, it's a really unique skill to be able to write um especially nonfiction. if you've come from the fiction world it's a really difficult skill to be able to find a way into the material that's compelling and entertaining but isn't doesn't sound self-serving or obvious and trite and cliche and not everyone has that i think it's a function of age and experience and practice but yeah i have a team that helps me in terms of research from time to time they'll do first drafts and things like that when so for instance i did a book recently in which i had my researcher come on board and what i like to do with books is i've read books where people just express their opinion and it doesn't seem to be backed by anything and i don't really respect what they're doing there because anybody can do that i, I think i go with more of the peer-reviewed article approach in the sense that i like to give references to third-party sources to demonstrate that I may have these ideas, but they're backed by scholarship. And so I often use my team to support that. We're going to take a short break and be right back. 
Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low-income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID-conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to Special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Welcome to our new sponsor, Jorgensen HR. Jorgensen HR believes that an employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen HR works to ensure that employers are in compliance with federal, state, and local HR laws and helps assist them with almost everything else HR. Driven by passion and guided by expertise, Jorgensen HR. Please remember to mention Small BizCast when you call 661-600-2070 or visit them online at jorgensenhr.com. If you know of anyone who feels lonely on their way to the top, I can help. Hot Dog Business Growth is for companies of all sizes. For people new to business, we offer the Pay It Forward Roundtable, a monthly half-day panel discussion with your peers, coupled with one-to-one private counseling with me. This is super affordable and the best OJT you'll ever get as you learn to grow your business. For the more seasoned, Hot Dog Business Growth offers counseling for leadership and teams. We offer sales strategies and team synergy, as well as customer service assessments and training. Our decades of business experience is on tap for you and your team. Schedule your no-obligation conversation at hotdogbizgrowth.com. We are back with Michael Ashley of Michael Ashley Publishing. Do you also help people tell presentation-type stories or prepare for? Do you do anything on that level? Yeah. Can you talk about? Can you can you talk about that a little bit, please? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and I met because we gave I gave a presentation at your group. Um, I've helped a lot of provisors, especially that, that networking group. I've helped a lot of them with their own presentations, and that's taken different forms. There was one person that I helped who had kind of a complex idea, and so it was a keynote that was an hour long presentation. Mm-hmm. In fact, she had me read an entire book to understand the concepts, and then I worked backwards to break it into a presentation. I've given many different presentations before, and I do think it's it's kind of an art form to to be good at it, especially virtually. In person, you have the advantage of your presence and the energy that you in the room. But virtually, it's quite difficult in the sense that you got to keep people's attention when their phone is going off or they're getting texts or whatever it is. And so I help people with that. And so I helped her structure the entire presentation. Likewise, I had a, a, a client who specializes in helping his clients very wealthy people uh, do what Mark Cuban and the like do to avoid the tax implications. So I created an entire sales presentation for him. I spent, I think it was three to five hours getting to know his business. And then I worked backwards to create an entire presentation to demonstrate the value that he brings. Got it. What about the, um, the visual, the visual element of presentations? Do you get involved with curating that as well? Yeah, exactly. So at the time I had my assistant, I picked up the images and then I had my assistant create it. Whether it was slides or Prezi, we did that. And so the way that I write my presentations is I kind of use a storyboard approach from screenwriting where I, I have an image and I'll actually select the image and then I'll use that 
to kind of anchor the, the material and then I'll write to what the image is. So they're kind of like you're, you're telling a story both visually and through the and through the written word, or in this case, it'll be spoken eventually. But yes, I, that's the way that I create presentations. So you seem to really understand the whole science and artistry of storytelling. When you're in the audience for a business presentation, do you find yourself mentally fixing what they're doing wrong, or are you able to? Are yeah, you, of course. Yeah. So, so what's the number one mistake that? amateurs make or people that haven't haven't don't take your approach make what would would someone like me take away that i should work on right now well the first thing is don't read your slides <laughs> I don't know why people do that. you know don't write everything on the slides if you did why are we listening to you right uh less is more i tend to not use any words on my slides mm-hmm. unless it's one or two to punctuate something or let's say you have to give examples and they it, you and it works on two levels so don't read your slides number one the other thing I'd say is it comes down to your presentation itself and being comfortable with it. You know, you can tell, first of all, people that are, if it's virtual, you can tell when they're reading off their screen. Sure. They don't it. Uh, you can tell when they're unprepared. They haven't practiced it before. The other thing I'd say is, and it could be virtual or in real life, it's not really a presentation aspect. It's more of, 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 um, of, of your overall aura or being. The people that try to sell to the room, I find it very off-putting. There are places, and of course, there are certain people that direct that do direct sales to their audiences. It may just be the circles that I run with, but what I find is the best presentations do make you money. You can do wonderfully well. In fact, that's what I've built a business off of, is doing this kind of speaking, but don't make it about yourself and don't try to sell the room. Don't ask for a call to action. Instead, demonstrate the value that you provide show don't tell what you can do and don't ask for anything just be a resource be valuable to people and and it will come to you so i think what you're saying is tell a story of how you solved the problem how you've identified a problem posited a solution and then executed is that what you're trying to say well you can do that i mean that's that's one way as well i mean just be i mean it doesn't really have to be like i solved this problem but what i mean is be an advocate for them Mm-hmm. You think about Dale Carnegie, you know, or that that phrase, the Witham phrase. What's in it for me? If right. you look backwards and you think, if I was in the audience right now, and there are many things that could compete for my time, why should I be listening to you? If right. You come in with that idea, as opposed to I want to get ten clients out of this, right? If you come in with with humbleness and humility and say, I'm I'm going to be here to help other people, I think it works out better for you. So I've met tons of people that are great in front of an audience and are completely tone deaf when it comes one-on-one. And I've met an equal amount of people who have the opposite attributes where they are great one-on-one and in front of an audience, they just simply, you know, can't connect. And oftentimes I think stage fright's a real thing. Speaking in front of a in public is a real thing. I, I know I struggle with it to be sure. And I always feel most comfortable when I'm in a one-on-one environment when I'm able to really connect with somebody and have, you know, eye contact and body language and just be in the moment and be there. And I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you convey that? Is that an acting technique (laughs) to be comfortable in in an audience when you're really good one-on-one or vice versa? What's, what's the, what's, what's the skill set that needs developing when you have a a deficiency in one of those two areas? I don't know if I know that exact answer, but I'll give you, I'll tell you a story about what happened to me and maybe this will help explain it. 
you know, you met you and I met because I did a presentation for your for your group and, and you liked it and yes. I, it came off professional. And that's I've given a lot of presentations that have I've heard back that it, it worked really well. Well it wasn't always that case. So um, when I was in high school, I wasn't very good at public speaking. When I was in college, I wasn't really good at public speaking. I did take a public speaking class, but I think I got a B minus or something. It wasn't outstanding. And in film school, the they have a pitch. They have, I have an actual pitching class that they have you take, but it's it's the worst way ever to teach people how to pitch. Um, our final was we were supposed to give a twenty minute presentation to a group of people that would say nothing. And this is not the case. People never do that. They never give you 20 minutes to talk before cutting you off at 30 seconds. So long story short, when I graduated from film school, I went to work at Creative Artists Agency, which is the biggest talent agency in the world. And my boss was the head of the literary department. And my friend who got me the job was her personal assistant. And so she said, um, the woman's name was Kathy, who I worked for. And she said, I can get you a pitch meeting with Kathy and you can pitch your project. Because I'd asked her again and again and again, can I pitch this this?" script I'd written. I won an award for it in film school. That was really great. And I did it. I, I gave, I pitched to her. Unfortunately, I did it over the phone because that was the only way I could do it. And I did it at a job that I was working. So I had to sneak around the building and give this pitch, which it was not, I wasn't setting myself up for success. Anyway, <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Anyway, it was terrible. And my friend afterward, her name's Karen. She said, Karen said, that was awful. And I'm embarrassed that I set this up for you because it was just so bad. And after that, I, I'm the kind of person where uh, pain is a good teacher for me. And I felt pain after that. I felt embarrassed. And I vowed never to do that again and to get really good at this. And so when I first launched my company, I was in a chamber of commerce and there were people who did really bad presentations. And I thought, I can do better than this. And so I did one. And what I did beforehand was I practiced. I didn't practice before that pitch with Kathy. I really practiced. I created a really good visual slide deck and, and I practiced and I memorized it and I was really prepared and I got a lot of compliments on it. And so what I know about me, I'm not exactly an introvert, but I'm not exactly an extrovert either. There are times when I'm both. And so when I, I get a lot of nervous energy before I go on stage and, and I've probably spoken, I don't know, 500, maybe a thousand times in the last few years, a lot. And so what I kind of like to do is I like to, first of all, I, I always practice now. I am extremely well prepared. I know what I'm going to do. But there are times when I don't even have a script or I didn't, and I just do it off the cuff. And I like that because in a sense, it's like I'm being a daredevil and I, I like that energy. It's like, I'll give you an example. I'm not saying I'm Jim Morrison, but what Jim Morrison's bandmates used to say in the doors is that you didn't know with Jim, it could be either really good or really bad. And I like to just feel like I'm out there a little bit as if I don't know and then allow that nervous energy to make me drill down and do really well in the moment. And so what I mean by this, I, I don't know exactly what makes a person great personally but bad in, in the public presentation. But I will say practice is key in a sense of authenticity. When I get up there, I'm not faking any of that stuff. Right. The stories that I tell are very personal and um and, and they're 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 caught up in my life and they're they're based on often my life story and things that i deeply care about and so all of that comes through i believe it I myself comes through it's not canned or rehearsed i'm living kind of in that moment where anything could go badly but i'm really hoping that it goes well so i hope that answers it no it does that quality that you just described comes out that's how i would view you if someone were to ask me to describe you i would say i i feel like i'm speaking to someone who's being very authentic not trying to impress not trying to do anything other than just just 
you know, show, show us your cards as to who you are and how you do things. And it, it comes across. And I don't know whether that, I mean, if, if I, I, can, I think I have a good sense that this is just who you are and that this works for you. Some people don't have that ability to be vulnerable. Some people just don't have that. And they just have, I guess they just have to be a work in progress when it comes to that, because you can't, I don't think you can teach it. I think you can describe it, but I don't think you can teach it. What's your experience? I think there's one other uh, there's one other thing that, that I need to add to this, and, and that's this. I've had a lot of really bad jobs in my life, and I had uh, for um, I mean I've only, I've had I think 75 different jobs in my life. And I'm sorry, worked, you're like what? How old are you? Are you 30 even? I'm 42. You are. Uh, you yeah. don't look it. <laughs> so I've had a lot of bad jobs, and I and and um, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, and mm-hmm. I had to pay my dues in a lot of different ways in terms of working what they call it on spec in Hollywood where you get paid nothing or people tell you make a lot of promises. So the, uh, the idea that I get to do this for a living and not have to work for someone else again, which I despised and not have to work in a crappy job. I feel so blessed when I'm doing it, that that's where I, I, I come alive. I'm not faking it because I really do love what I, what I do. And I think that's, that's what it, it comes from. Well, that's, that's what I hope for everybody to love what they do, to find their passion and joy. I think, um, uh, can you imagine a, a world where you feel joyful, but you're not delivering the value that you you would want to deliver or vice versa? I, I don't think it's possible. I think in order to have joy, and I think, I think for entrepreneurs in particular, the frustration they often feel is that they can't be free to be who they are and still run their company the way they think it should be run. And I think as time goes on, as you um, build a business that eventually switches from you working for it to it works for you, mm-hmm. you learn to find that freedom, which then creates the joy. But in between, it's often a feeling of being trapped. And if you're if you're feeling that feeling of being trapped, and then you have to go stand in front of an audience to convey what makes you as a company, your company special, it can be very challenging to do. I agree. The ability to develop a technique for storytelling is really important. And I see it all the time when I'm talking to uh, business people that I'm, I'm counseling, that mm-hmm. they often can't tell a story about what they do very well. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I was really intrigued to speak with you is because I'm, you know, I'm a frustrated writer. If you would ask me what, you know, what I am, I'd uh, give you a whole list of things that I am and somewhere a writer would pop in there. But if you ask me what I've written, it's so small and never finished, never, you know, never, ha- never satisfied. It's a, it's, it's a frustration I have that sometimes someday, one day I'll get back to it. But I write for business all the time and I write well for business, but I don't write stories for business. I write solutions for business. I write value propositions. And so, but when I'm in front of people, I tell stories. Mm-hmm. So how do I bridge that? How do I tell the story that I want to tell when I'm writing value propositions or bullet points? I mean, I, I'm a big bullet point guy. You should see what I write. I was just doing before you got on here. I, I, I developed my custom bullets and everything. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, that here's a simple way to practice. Whatever, whatever point you're trying to make, turn it into a story. And this is, by the way, this is uh, not something that comes easy. I won't say it came easy to me. So when I was in film school, they, they okay, I'll give you, uh, let me back up a second. I was a playwright before I went to film school. And playwriting is very different because you actually want to say everything that your character is thinking. I mean, right. it's, it's meant to be 
it's a medium where you say a lot, right? That's what a soliloquy is, right? It's a breakaway right. from the story for this the, the character to tell what's on his mind, right? Right, right, exactly. But writing for TV is very different because you want to often be playing, they call it subtext, right? So I may tell you I feel good, but my eyes show you I'm sad, okay? So it's a very different kind of way to, to demonstrate something. But really what we're getting at is when, when it comes to screenwriting is showing, not telling. And so I'll give you an example. I happened to just this morning watch that movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye Baker. And I'm, I don't think it's a good movie, but there's a scene very early on in the movie where I can tell the screenwriters wanted to show that Jimmy, uh, her husband, would care more about the material life than the spiritual life, to put it nicely. And so, but they did it very heavy handed. In the moment, he's giving a presentation where he talks, he almost sounds like Joel Osteen, but several decades before. And so he's saying all this stuff. And then in the audience, you can see, you know, the Tammy is feeling, he's getting caught up in it. Well, it's a poor way to write it. So what you want to do instead is, can you express what you want to express there without any dialogue? That mm -hmm. is the true artist, the true writer there. And so what I'm getting at is, let's say you have bullet points in your presentation or whatever it is that you want to say. How can you dramatize that? How can you show that without any dialogue? How mm -hmm. can a story convey that? It's not easy to do. If you look at Pixar is really good at this. And, and old-fashioned cartoons are, are very good at it, too. If you think about Tom and Jerry, I don't believe there's any dialogue in those old cartoons. Right. And music. Can, the music tells the story quite a bit, though. Well, it does, but I mean, you could, probably, you could probably play a different song and it would still work. Right. But what I mean by that is they are showing, not telling. And so if you can do that, then it's a wonderful art form. The best writers that, that I know of are able to convey something through a story. It's a metaphor, right? So it's, whether we're talking about the Bible or Aesop's fables, all of these great works of, of literature and art are able to demonstrate an idea through story. And I think really, if, if, if you're looking to improve it or anyone else is looking to improve it, it's just a function of practice. Right. Practice. Are you, um, do you uh, counsel or coach other uh, people for, and how do they reach you? And how, how do they, how do you, is that, you mentioned the, the, the co-writing co-authorship program. Yeah. That's, that seems like a very long commitment, but for maybe presentation consulting, is that something that you do? Yeah. Uh, and how long, is, how long is a typical engagement for that, and how does that work? Well, it depends on, I mean, the, that one presentation I mentioned to you took several weeks to do. They don't always take that long. Um, it depends. It's just uh, project-specific. I consult with, I'll give you an example. I worked with a lawyer, a, a, another fellow pro, provisor who wanted to get better at, at storytelling. Right. And so I canceled him for a few weeks, different sessions. It depends on what people are looking for. I just would discharge my hourly rate on that. And if people are interested, they can send me an email. I help people write their own books. I help them create their presentations. I help them do their TED Talks, whatever it is. I can see that being a trial lawyer. I can also see that being just somebody who's a rainmaker or somebody who wants to attract uh, new clients. Is that one of those two? Yeah. Okay, got it. Absolutely. Um, like right now, I help people with their elevator pitch and being able to say what you do within 30 seconds to a minute. I help them with their case studies. Oftentimes, business professionals may be good at what they do, but they're not good at conveying what they do. And so I help them with that. What gives you the most joy in your business? What gives me the most joy? I think the being creative. When people come to me with an idea and getting to explore it with them and getting to build a story around it, getting to build a book around it. And 
I'm, I've always been a kind of person who was in love with ideas. My undergrad was in philosophy. And so I, I have the good fortune to meet with some of the brightest, most creative people and to build something with them. And so I'm learning from all these people. And it, you know, it's almost like I'm getting a masterclass every day, learning from them. And that would be the best. I would love that. I was just thinking a series of thoughts while you're talking. I was thinking, can you write? Can can Michael write or, or a good writer write on behalf of somebody they don't particularly like? And then I always wonder when I'm reading when I'm reading like a Aaron Sorkin, can Aaron Sorkin write for somebody who's smarter than he is? Can I write for somebody smarter than I am? And then finally, I was thinking, if I'm writing for somebody I don't really like, but I spend the, take the time to know them, I'll bet you I could get to a place where I could like them before too long. And so I thought I'd just throw those three, those three concepts out at you because you're so good at the narrative. I thought I'd just throw them out at you and see sure. how you handle them. Well, let's do one at a time. So what was the first one again? Could you? <laughs> can, uh, can you write for somebody that you don't particularly care for, that maybe you find distasteful or obnoxious or yes. you know, against your principle, you know, unprincipled against what you don't believe, you know? Um, well, I, I probably can, but I'm not going to. I've had some opportunities where I was actually offered quite a, a lot of money to do some few books that I did walk away from. I probably could fake it, but I, I don't want to. And I don't want to participate and bring ideas into the world that I'm against. I think that it would be a dereliction of my duty as, as a human being to do that. And I also think that the universe works in such a way that it's almost like it tests you and it says, well, would you be willing to do this? We'll give you this short-term little boost, this whatever this money is, but I think you'll pay for it later. Yeah. Even if that wasn't true, it goes against my integrity to to do that. The second one I think was, can I write for someone that, what was it again? Can you write for someone that's smarter than you? Right. I think on that one, what, what you want to do is you want to try to understand a subject and you want to try to think about it rationally. Right. So let's say that I'm writing a science fiction book and there are concepts in the science fiction book that I don't entirely understand. Well, I think what you'd want to do is you'd want to try to understand them as best as you could. And then you would want to think rationally, how might this work and extrapolate a little bit further to have it make sense? I think also that when it comes to the best writers, what they're doing is they're actors, too. And so I think it definitely benefits you to be an intelligent person. But you're, there are your characters are going to be at different levels of intelligence. And it's going to sound weird for me to say this, but if you were to say the same thing to, let's say, Tom Hanks, can you play a character that's smarter than you? Well, what you have to do is that you have to take the, um, the method acting approach, right? Yeah. You have to inhabit that role. And it's going to sound weird to say that, but it's almost as if you have to take a leap of faith and say, I'm going to be this smart. I'm going to make myself into this character mm -hmm. and see what happens. That's what I would do in that situation. So you remember a few minutes ago, I was saying that as a frustrated writer, I've written many things that have never gotten finished. And largely it's the dialogue that stops me that I find myself feeling like all my characters just are dopes. <laughs> I don't, you know, yeah. and they bug me. They bug me, and I stop writing them because they just—I just don't see them being somebody I would want to listen to any further. And so, well, I, have, uh, I have a solution for that. So, I think, <laughs> one of the best classes I took in film school was writing for actors. Uh -huh. 
or, or acting for writers, whatever they called it. Um, and what she would do is you had to be the characters. You had to do a lot of acting and think like an actor to do it. Right. And so it's really, you know, a lot of writers don't do that. They don't try to imagine reading these lines. I happen to have the life experience. I've been an actor too. Um, I like writing a lot more than I like acting. But when you're doing acting, you at least the way that I, the Stanislavski method, the method acting is right. the way that, that I always uh, took to acting. I think the other way sounds wooden and fake and maybe mm -hmm. some people can pull it off, but not me. Um, I, I really would make myself feel those things, right? I would get into the character. And I think if you want to get better at dialogue, if you want to do those things, you first of all, you have to listen well, start listening to how people talk. And the other thing is you have to be that character. So um, I've written for men and women at different ages, different races, different life experiences. And it's something, um, it's so, I guess, ingrained in my personality now where when I'm doing it, I just find myself becoming them. I'm like, uh, I'm mimicking them. Not, I want to say mimicking, but I'm inhabiting the role like they do. And so when you're doing that, I think it's, it's a little mental game that you got to do. You have to switch on, you know, you stop being Joel and you're whoever, right? right. Talk as it, don't you know, be that character. Don't talk as if you were it, like be that character. That's how you do it. So you're writing for one character. I mean, when you're acting, you're acting as one character. But when you're writing, you're writing for multiple characters. Do you switch from character to character to character? Yep. So it becomes must be a very slow process because you have to put yourself in that mental state for every sex side of the dialogue. Well, perhaps, but I'll give you an example. So when I was a kid, I, I used to play with Star Wars toys and G.I. Joes. And that's actually what my kids do. And I would you know, play it and I would do it. And so it wasn't as if I was, uh, you know, just Han Solo or whatever. I was all the characters. Right. Maybe that's what it, maybe that's how I'm able to do it because I just did that so often. And it was so right. much fun. A lot of my childhood was spent doing that. Yeah. You're a fascinating guy. I really can't talk about this all day long. I find the juxtaposition of uh, the art of writing, something that I aspire to be one day when I grow up and the art of you know, being happy in business and, and successful in business. Those are passions that I share. So I can talk with you about this all day long and I hope we continue to, uh, to do so. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to do it. Michael, Ashley, thank you. I know your words today will help business people improve their narratives in countless ways. I encourage all of my listeners to go to michaelashleypublishing.com to learn more. Small BizCast drops twice a month. Stay connected on our socials at Small BizCast or join our online community by liking the Hot Dog Business Growth Facebook page. All of our resources to help businesses grow to their full potential can be found on www.hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Small business, it's a wonderful life. Hot Dog. <laughs>